If you'd remain standing for our scripture reading, which comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. Paul writes this, No one can lay any other foundation besides the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, whether someone builds on top of the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, grass, or hay, each one's work will be clearly shown. The day will make it clear because it will, re- it will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work survives, they'll get a reward. But if anyone's work goes up in flames, they'll lose it. However, they themselves will be saved as if they had gone through a fire. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated, please. This morning we're going to be continuing our sermon series as we look through the Apostles' Creed, 12 statements of faith that tell us the essentials of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and a Christian. And so this morning I want to begin by inviting you to think about something and do something a little differently. I want to invite you to think about your Bible that you maybe read at home or use in your own personal life. I want you to think, what books of the Bible do you read most often? What books of the Bible do you not read very often? And which ones do you maybe never read at all? All So what if we weighted the pages in our Bible according to which ones were read the most? My guess is that most of our Bibles, the New Testament, which is only... Oh, I'm almost there. Hold on. Uh, You know, the New Testament in my Bible, I mean, there's notes here too, is this much. But if we only read the New Testament, what if we weighted it? My guess is the gospel would be this wide, and then everything else would be really little, wouldn't it? And that's making a generalization and an assumption. And, and maybe the letters, they probably would have a little more from the New Testament. And maybe the Psalms, if we think about, if we start going into the Old Testament. But my guess is there's portions of the Bible that if we weighted it and had them in terms of thickness by what we read the most often, there are some parts that they'd be pretty small or thin, wouldn't they? I should probably ask myself that, as a, that same question as a preacher. What passages do I frequently preach and which ones do I ignore? It's probably similar, isn't it? And honestly, that's part of why I like reading through like books of the Bible as parts of sermon series. Because then it's a lot harder for us to avoid certain parts of the Bible. Kind of like when we did the Thessalonians series before this one. Um, you know, I found passages of the Bible and, and portions of the Scripture and, that we were looking at in worship that I don't think I'd ever looked at in worship before. And so I thought that was very helpful. I think the thing is, is we have a tendency to avoid things that make us uncomfortable or we don't fully understand, don't we? We have a tendency to avoid places or things that challenge us. It's in our nature as humans. To avoid those things that, that make us uncomfortable or, or knowingly or unknowingly cause us to, to focus on things that, that cause us to leave our comfort zone, don't we? So we're really comfortable in, in those things that, that either speak to us or are comfortable to us or come naturally to us. But when it comes to thinking of things that are outside that line, we're a little more hesitant, aren't we? A little more hesitant to read, to study, to, to take that next step, whatever it is. And so let's take that line of thought and think about it today in terms of the Apostles' Creed. 
Because I don't know about you, but as I have thought about all of these statements of faith that we have looked at and are continuing to look at in the Apostles' Creed, um, there are some that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I've spent a lot of time you know, um, listening to, to sermons or teachings or, or reading Scripture about. I mean, if we, we correspond that with our weighted, weighted Bible, then obviously the one that says, you know, Jesus Christ our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, suffered under Pontius Pilate, kind of this middle block are probably our most common, especially if we compare it to how our Bible would be weighted. They're all the Gospels, aren't they? So they'd be the biggest. And then some of these other statements would be ones that we either really haven't taken a lot of time to think about or we've really just kind of overlooked them because they make us uncomfortable. And here's where it's the blessing of the creed. Is it causes you and I to remember the entire gospel. Not just to remember our favorite parts. For us to remember how God has offered himself in, in so many ways to us through his son, Jesus Christ, and then through the Spirit. And so we have to remember the grand scope, the entire scope of things, and not just highlight or remember our favorite parts. A couple of weeks ago, I was reminded of, of that statement of faith that Jesus descended to the dead. While I fully acknowledge and believe that, that he physically died and descended to the dead, I was reminded how crucially important that is in terms of us receiving the forgiveness and grace that God has offered us. We cannot remember, we cannot fully celebrate the resurrection without acknowledging and remembering that Jesus truly died. He wasn't in some state of just like in-between some state of holding, like on a sci-fi movie or some other thing, before he came out of the tomb. The scriptures tell us he died, and because of that, we can celebrate the full victory of God. As God has conquered evil, as God has paid the price for everything. And so this morning's statement of faith, I think, is similar to that. I think it's one of those that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. I think we recite it, I think we say it, and then I think we just kind of let it go because it's one of those that makes us a little more uncomfortable. And it's, from thence he shall come to judge the quicker the dead, or depending on the translation, and this morning we, we actually said the, the modern version or ecumenical version of the Apostles' Creed that actually contains the phrase, um, the living and the dead. Well, I think it more, makes more sense for us to use the phrase, the living and the dead, because we live in contemporary times, and it's more modern, it's kind of more, more relevant to who we are today and, and how we speak today. I like the idea of the quick and the dead, and, and there's why, right? <clears throat> because one of them is quick, one of them isn't, and that one ends up dead. Okay, uh, so, in our, and so it's interesting for us, though, to think about this phrase in the creed, being one that we really don't spend a lot of time thinking about, do we? I think it's interesting that we, we overlook it, or, or maybe we just don't spend a lot of time pausing on it, because it really is an important doctrine of the church. And it's an important doctrine in Christianity. And it's an important doctrine because it helps us to understand what we receive in the resurrection that God has promised us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so as I've thought about this passage of, of the, the Apostles' Creed, this statement of faith, I think the main reason that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about it is it speaks to judgment. And honestly, who likes judgment? And so because it speaks to judgment, we avoid it because it makes us uncomfortable. 
The idea of judgment makes us uncomfortable. Who wants to spend a lot of time thinking about judgment, except for those that it's their job? Furthermore, we know that it's the judgment of God that, that we're talking about. So it's not just human judgment, is it? When we're talking about this line, Jesus is coming to judge the quick and the dead. Jesus is coming to, to judge the living and the dead. It's an eternal judgment, is it not? And we know in our minds and because of Scripture that the, the idea of the eternal judgment of God means separation. Separation from the goodness of God, from the freedom that God has given us, from the love that God has offered us, from everything of those who have chosen to live faithfully in response to God's grace, from those who have chosen to ignore the grace of God for themselves. Here's where I think it's uncomfortable for us is that at our core, we love other people, don't we? We want the best for them. And I think it's hard for us to think about the judgment of God because ultimately we know what that means for us and for them. And so I think to begin for us thinking about it today, is the early church didn't see the judgment of God as something to be avoided. In fact, they saw it as something that was positive. They saw it as something that, that brought hope and brought peace to Christians. And in the New Testament, if you go and read, about, read and look up judgment or the judgment of God and the return of Jesus, there's over 300 verses in the New Testament alone that, that talk about the return of Jesus. Because that's what we remember the judgment of God is coupled with, is Jesus' return, Jesus' um, second coming. And if we read any of those 300 verses, we can see how the early church passed on a belief to us that God promised, that Jesus promised himself that those who live faithfully will be in the very presence of Jesus when he returns. See, there's a promise there. That's hope. That's peace. They also believed that God would, would right all wrong in Jesus' return. So that everything, when Jesus comes back, that has been skewed by sin or marred or dis anything, disturbed, whatever word you want to use, that when Jesus returns, all of those things that we look at and we say, that's not right, Well, God is going to reestablish it and God is going to restore it when Jesus returns and when he returns both physically and personally in relationship with each of us. See, friends, the early church looked to this and saw it as a good thing. And in fact, they were actively waiting. They were actively looking for his triumphant return. If you remember with me, um, in our last sermon series, we looked at Paul's letter to the church in, in Thessalonica. And there were those in Thessalonica that, that had stopped working because they believed that Jesus' return, his second return, was not happening in some faraway time, but it was going to happen tomorrow. And so instead of working, instead of engaging in commerce and engaging with their neighbors and their community and doing all those things that, that you and I know that it takes to live each day, they were spending all their time just waiting and looking to the sky, thinking, when's it going to come? When's Jesus going to come? 
And see, so Paul wrote to them, and, and he said, you know, that, that as Christians, we're to both anticipate the return of Jesus while still working and living our life to the fullest. Basically, Paul said, well, I mean, Paul said what Jesus said, right? Is that no one knows the time or place, the only, not even the Son, only the Father knows. And then there were those in Thessalonica that anticipated, they were in fear that Jesus had already returned, that they themselves had missed the boat. They'd missed it. They'd, they'd not seen it. They'd slept, whatever the word is. And what did Paul say to them? He said, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will die first. What Paul is saying, he also said, is that in Titus, that, that the return of Christ was going to be the blessed hope, the ultimate hope that we have as followers of Jesus Christ and as people who have professed and who have chosen to follow God and, and his Son. See, friends, I think this verse in the, the Apostles' Creed helps us to see that, that the return of, of Jesus and the final judgment is, is one of the most anticipated while also the most unknown things that you and I can talk about in the Apostles' Creed. It's certainly something we can look forward to, but in terms of what we can look forward to it, it's also one of the things that's hardest for us to, for us to understand, isn't it? If you've read any books... On the return of Jesus, there's a popular series, right, Left Behind. There's a multitude of, of authors who have devoted their time and their energy into trying to explain this line. They're trying to outline, they're trying to anticipate the judgment of Jesus Christ. And, and you know, they, they say that, that maybe Jesus will come in two phases or two parts. That he's first going to come to the saints, and then after a period of time, he, he returns with the saints to earth. But that's not really what the scripture tells us. The biblical understanding of Jesus' return is that it's going to happen at once, and that it's going to be no secret. The faithful will be caught up. They will meet him in the clouds, and, and we will go up and, and ascend to Jesus and then return with him to the earth that he will create, he will renew, he will restore, he will do all of those things that you and I think that only God can do. And the point is, is that Christ's return is going to be one great and one climatic event. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said this about his return is that there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. That's in Luke's gospel that Jesus says that. Luke's chapter 12. This means that in the final return of Jesus, as we've seen that everything will be made right, everything will be restored, everything will be renewed, Jesus is saying that as well. Is that when he returns, everything is going to be made known. Every crime, every thought, every action, every lie, every omission, whatever it is, and it will be exposed. And that the biblical idea of judgment means that God is going to take every part of you and I that does those things and he's going to make it right. How is that not a thing of hope? I'd love to have God take the areas of my life that I, I fall short and, and just take them away, wouldn't you? So that I can live more for Him and more for others. And like we've done through this series, we've also, you know, we, we look at, at the misunderstandings or, or maybe where, why this makes us uncomfortable. 
I think another reason that it does is we want to say and we want to place ourselves just on the idea that God is only a God of love without having any judgment. I think part of this is this idea that by saying that is we're trying to say that God doesn't expect anything of us. Where when I read the gospel, when I read the New Testament, when I read the Old Testament, when I, I see of God's history and of God's chose, choosing to be in relationship with us, has God not constantly, from the beginning with Abraham to the people of Israel to the time of Exodus to the time of the prophets and the kings, even up to Jesus, told people that are choosing to be in relationship with him that he was going to offer them, but they had to return in 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 the same measure what he'd given to them. We've been reading, um, Katie and I are reading, or I guess we all are, uh, the, the Bible through the year, and, and we're in Exodus right now in like chapter 28 or something like that. And, um, and this, today's scripture was, was Moses getting instruction from God on how to craft the, the priest's clothing. Has anyone read those portions of the scripture? Not very exciting. You're kind of reading it, and you're going, well, okay. You know, it has to have gold here, it has to have emeralds here, it has to have this type of thread and that type of tassel and all of this stuff. But see, I think that's helpful because it shows us that God is saying, for you to be in relationship with me, you have to do the things that I want of you. And so in the Old Testament, it was to prepare the priest so that the priest could come into the temple before the altar and enter the Holy of Holies and be prepared physically, mentally, everything to, to be in relationship with God. And in New Testament, it's how do we change our lives according to the grace and the hope and the forgiveness and everything else that God has offered us? Because the Scripture tells us. See, as we talk about how God is going to come to judge the quick and the dead, it's crucial for us to understand that the ultimate promise of this is that when you look around and when you think of things in your life and in this world that are wrong, this is the promise that God's going to make everything right. And so the judgment of God in, in, in the larger context of, of God's relationship with humanity has he not taken it upon himself to bear the sins that you and I commit even before we committed them? And in him taking on the sin, he's also taken on himself the, and accepted the verdict. And because of that, you and I are invited to accept the gift of grace. Because God has taken the verdict and the punishment that you and I deserve and that you and I would have if not for him sending his son and his son dying on the cross on our behalf. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, By grace you've been saved. Through faith, it is, in it is the gift of God. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. See, God has created us to do good, to live well, and to believe in his son Jesus Christ. What we can celebrate with this statement today is that this is proof that we are saved. Not by our work, not by the things that you and I do, not by the way that, that we are able to accumulate or stockpile or, or place good credits in the bank account that we have with God. 
But we can celebrate that we're saved because of God's grace and because of the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. The second thing that this statement of faith helps us to see and to proclaim every time that we say it is that God has promised He's going to make everything right. Friends, we live in a world and a time that things seem hopeless. They seem overwhelming. They seem out of our control and they make us uncomfortable. But see, God has promised us that He's above all that. That He's beyond all that. And that in His return, He will take all of those things, toss them aside, and He will make everything right for His kingdom and for us, and for all those who have chosen to be in relationship with Him. By grace you've been saved. Through faith in it is the gift of God. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good work.